Hi, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm talking about centering our lives on the truth. I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to tackle a very difficult topic. I say top difficult topic in 45 minutes it's difficult um, because of the, the nature of the content. Um, it's interesting if you read the book of John there's a very important word that's mentioned 27 times and yet when you look at <clears throat> Matthew and Mark and Luke it's rarely mentioned and the word generally almost exclusively is used by Jesus and the word that I'm referring to is the word truth you know you're probably uh, familiar with some of the, the scripture in John uh, 8 31 and 32 it says if you continue in my word then you will truly be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and then John 14 6 when Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the Father but through me. You know, in the Christian life, truth is paramount. And of course, Jesus is speaking of truth with Pilate, and then Pilate says, what is truth? And then walks away before Jesus can even respond. You know, in its simplest definition, truth is that which is real and actual. It's that which conforms to reality. C.S. Lewis says one should embrace Christianity not because it makes you feel good, but because it's true. He says Christianity is not a patent medicine. Christianity claims to give an account of facts to tell you what the real universe is like. Now there are a number of different truth categories that we could talk about that are vitally important, but I want to hone in on one category of truth today that is very pertinent to this series that we've been doing. You know, if you think about it, and I, I really notice this because of my children as I'm watching them grow up, but every single human being enters into this life and begins to try and make sense of it. And as we grow older, we begin to develop certain ideas about how life works. And I don't care how old you are, we continue that quest trying to figure out how life really works. And as we develop these set of ideas, what we find is, is this is what governs our thinking and tells us what the world is like and how we should live in it. I mean, think about these words. Think about them. Success love, sex, money, pleasure, happiness, friendship, material possessions, suffering, death, heaven, hell. These are all important issues in a man's life and each of us has formed a certain set of beliefs and ideas about each of them. Maybe we've never articulated them, but we have them. And this is what I want to really focus on this morning. Our beliefs or ideas are either true or they're false. It's like Drayton last week, he shared a very fundamental basic idea from the scriptures. A belief on, or idea on the issue of happiness. 
And, and as he pointed, his idea has the support of Scripture. And either that idea is true or it's not true. That's why Blaise Pascal said that the reason that people struggle so much with life is because they have false ideas about reality. Think about that. Dallas Willard says, Why do people find their lives in chaos and their souls running amok? One of the primary reasons is that they are blinded by false ideas, distorted images, and misinformation so that their souls cannot find its way into a life of consistent truth and a harmonious pursuit of what is good. And so this is what, guys, I contend is so crucial for us to grasp because there is nothing more dangerous than building our lives on false ideas and false assumptions. A number of years ago, a professor down at UAB, a Dr. George Graham, articulated this quite well. Listen to what he said. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to face the truth. People who have the habit of not facing the truth have a habit of having trouble living in every aspect of their lives, in their job, and in their personal relationships. And then he says this, and this is really kind of what I want to focus on this morning. He says, being centered on the truth is crucial to a healthy, vital human life. And so that's a good question that we all should ask this morning. Are we healthy men? I'm not talking about physical health, obviously. I'm talking about mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. I mean, think about it. It starts with our relationships. Do I have healthy relationships? That, to me, is the mar one of the real marks of a healthy man. Healthy relationships, healthy marriage, a healthy relationship with your children, your friendships with other men. I mean, think, is your family life really, is it flourishing? Or is it troubled? And what about your work? I mean, are you suffocating in your work? Do you hate what you do? Are you filled with fear? How well do you sleep at night? And then what about your habits? Are there any, any addictions in your life? I heard a guy speak, he says over 65 of men in our country are either addicted to <clears throat> alcohol, drugs, gambling, or pornography. 65%. I don't know whether that's true, but that's, that's what they say. And then what do you do with your free time? That says a lot also. I mean, you spend all your free time in front of the TV or in front of the computer. And then what about your relationship with God, your spiritual life? Is your relationship with Him deepening as time goes by? And do you have that strong foundation to undergird your life? And I would just say this personally, just from reading the periodicals that I read, whether it's the Wall Street Journal or whether you listen to the news, I, I personally believe that we are not a very healthy culture. And what's interesting is the so social scientists back this up. There was an interesting book, in fact, Drayton has mentioned it, that uh, was published back in 2003. It was called, the Pro it's a wonderful book, it's called The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better while people feel worse. And there's been a great deal of research at institutions like Princeton and Yale and Harvard 
And what they've been trying to determine is the relationship between happiness and rising, rising prosperity. And what's happened is the results have been quite baffling. Because over the last 60 years, our economic well-being has gone like this. And yet our mental, emotional, psychological, and spiritual well-being has plummeted. You know, we somehow naturally, I think, logically think that they both ought to be going in the same direction. The more prosperous you get, the healthier you should be. And yet just the opposite's taking place. And we wonder why. And like I said, the, 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 the researchers find it baffling. Well, I think one of the issues is what I just read to you from Dr. George Graham when he said, we are unhealthy because our lives are not centered on what is true. Our lives are not in harmony with the truth. Around 20 years ago, I heard a quote, and I don't know why it was, but this quote really connected with me at the time, and it still is very meaningful, even though I had somewhat forgotten it until I started preparing this, uh, uh, this talk. And it comes from Jack Welch back, I want to say it was in 1992, uh, if you remember, Welch was the former CEO of, of General Electric, and in his heyday was probably one of the most admired business leaders in the world. Did just a masterful job turning GE around. And he shared this quote, and I want to read it to you. In fact, I'm going to read it twice. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, first, he's talking about corporations. I'm going to read it, but then I'm going to substitute the word corporation with the word individual. Listen to this. He says, the key trait of a vibrant, dynamic corporation is looking reality straight in the eye and then acting upon it with as much speed as you can. Listen to this again. The key trait of a vibrant, dynamic individual is looking reality straight in the eye and then acting upon it with as much speed as you can. If you read Welch's biography, which came out right when he retired, he'll tell you this is the foundational management, management belief that he implemented at GE. And he says, interestingly, he says, I learned this from my mother, who always insisted on facing the truth regardless of the situation. Now, in the Old Testament, we read about an individual. We probably know more about this guy's life, maybe more so than anybody else, because there's so much about him. And the person I speak of is, is David. You see him as a young man, and then you see him die. In 1 Chronicles, I think it's 29. And one of the real dark times in his life was when he was king, and Israel was at its zenith, it was very powerful. And his uh, army was off at war, and it says this was a time when kings are supposed to be with their armies in these kind of battles. But David was back at his palace, and it says it was late in the afternoon, and he'd just gotten out of bed. That kind of tells you what was going on in his life. And he's just kind of wandering around the palace, and he looks down, and he can see this beautiful woman taking a bath, Bathsheba. He sends for her. She comes, they, they have sexual relations. He sends her home thinking everything is just fine. She sends word that she's pregnant. It's 
So David, seeking to cover it up, thinks he sends for her husband who's in the battle, Uriah. Brings him to the palace. Gets him intoxicated. And says, you need to go home and be with your wife. You see what he was trying to do. But Uriah is such an honorable man. He refuses to. He says, my men are at battle and he sleeps on the porch. And David sees that his scheme didn't work, so he sends Uriah back with a note saying, put Uriah on the front lines. And he, he is put on the front lines and he's killed. David marries Bathsheba and thinks everything is fine. As if he's done nothing wrong, there's no guilt. Until the very wise prophet Nathan approaches him. And he, and he shares with them, with uh, David, this parable about a, a rich man and a poor man. The poor man has this little lamb. And the rich man has a, a guest come to his house. And instead of using one of his, the, many of the, uh, of the lambs in his herd, he goes and takes the poor man's, kills it, and they have it for dinner. And David is listening to this, and he is enraged. And he says to Nathan, This man will surely die. And Nathan confronted him and said, You are the man. And it just pierces David. And you see, it breaks him. And even though he pays a heavy price as far as the consequences, it transforms his life. And he finishes strong. But if you read Psalm 51, which is a prayer of David, after all this, after he's confronted, after he sees the truth about himself and what he's done, you see this contrite prayer. And in verse 6 it says, You desire truth in our inner being. Make me therefore to know wisdom in my inmost heart. And it's interesting, in one of the, uh, the, the modern versions where you see the par uh, this, this, uh, a paraphrase of the Bible, you read this. What you desire for my life is truth in my heart. Therefore conceive in me a life of truth. You know, if you think about it, this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, he says, Why is it that we're so consumed with pointing out the specks and the flaws and the deficiencies and the sin in our brother's eyes, but we don't see the log in our own life? He's saying, why are you always noticing other people's faults but don't see the truth about yourself? You know, one of the things that I pray for my children each day is, Lord, I pray that you would give my children the eyes to see the lies of this life because their minds and their hearts are so easily filled with the lies, whether it's from the media or whatever type of communication that they are confronted with or entertainment or whatever. This is why Drayton's words on obedience, I think, ring so true, guys. Where we, we, remember what he said last week? We assign, where we seek to align our wills with God's will. And in essence, what he's saying, we are seeking to align our lives with God's truth. Jesus in, in John 17 says, Lord, thy word is truth. 
And the reason is we want to prosper in our relationship with the truth instead of breaking our lives over it. Now, what I want to do is take about 20 minutes and talk about how the Bible says we respond, there are the various ways we respond to the truth. And I want to look at four different ways men and women respond to the truth. There may be more ways, but these are four that I clearly see in the Bible and that I see clearly uh, in our lives. And the, the first I want to look at is in the book of Romans. And it's in the first chapter, it's in the 21st verse, where God is speaking about godlessness and its consequences. And he's, then he says in verse 25, it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You hear that? Exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And that word creation comes from the Greek word katesis, which means product of creation. In other words, anything out in the created world. And what we are called to do, guys, we are called and designed to give God first place, to be primary loyalty, to have primary loyalty in our lives, and to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet what Paul is saying is we give our hearts to something in creation. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. And what's so interesting is that the idols are generally not sinful things, but good and basic products of creation that are elevated to ultimate things. This is what Philip Yancey says. He says in the Old Testament, God complained, and this is from Jeremiah 2.13, My people have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. An idolater chooses things that may be good in themselves and grants them a power they were never meant to have. What once was called idolatry, enlightened Westerners call addictions. Now, Instead of giving God preeminence in our lives, our depravity predisposes us to want to be independent of God and build our lives around the products of creation, to be autonomous, to be a law unto ourselves, so that we can be in control of our lives, so that we can shape our lives in the direction that we want them to go, not necessarily where God wants them to go. And so when we think in our minds and in our heads, that we know what's best for our lives and God does not, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. If we believe that totally surrendering our lives to Jesus will lead to an unhappy life, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And if we believe that loving the world and all the products of creation will lead to my well-being and happiness, then we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There is a proper place for the products of creation. They're for our good. But there's a proper place for them and there's a proper place for God. Now, a second way we deal with the truth is really quite interesting and kind of baffling. You see, the truth <clears throat> is often very hard. And a reasonable person will generally pursue the truth wherever it leads, but we need to know there's a kind of a cowardly side to us that balks at the truth 
when it begins to lead us anywhere that we don't really want to go. You see this both in the Old and New Testament. What I call this is trying, what we do, the truth is hard, and we try to soften it. We try to soften it. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 30. He's talking about the people of Israel. He says, this is a rebellious people. They refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. They say to the seers, the prophets, you must not see visions. You must not prophesy to us what is right. Listen to this. Instead, speak pleasant words to us. We don't want to hear the truth. We want to hear what's pleasant. In fact, he goes on to say, speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. In other words, we don't want to hear what's pleasant. I mean, we don't want to hear what's true. We don't want to hear what's pleasant, even if it's not true. And then he says, whatever you do, get out of the way, turn aside from the path. We do not want to hear any more about the Holy One of Israel. You know, that's, I think, a real problem we have is, you know, we don't want to hear hard words. We don't want to hear the hard truth. You know, tell me something that's pleasant. Make me feel good. That's what, that's what so many of us are. We want to feel good. And yet the truth often makes us feel bad. Now, in 2 Timothy, some of Paul's very last words, right before he dies, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and therefore will turn away their ears from the truth, and in the process will turn aside to myths. I, uh, a number of years ago, I was given a, a recorded message on a, uh, I think it was a, it was a, um, a cassette. That just shows you how old it was. Um, and uh, it was a the, uh, theologian speaking. Um, he taught at a seminary in one of the mainline denominations. And he was an excellent speaker, and he was a godly man. And uh, I take it that he was speaking to a big group of ministers in his denomination. That's kind of what I gathered, because he was kind of giving them a hard time, because he says, you know, that one of the problems in our denomination he says, you will rarely ever hear anyone preach on the importance, and he used this word, of being saved. We don't like that word in our denomination. And he says, the reason you, know, you guys don't like it, it makes people feel uncomfortable. It sounds too evangelical. Are you saved? And he says, the problem is we avoid that. Because it seems to me we have this propensity. I want people in my congregation to feel good, not uncomfortable. And yet the problem, he said, is you go into the scriptures. You, for instance, you start with the Christmas message. When the angel comes to Joseph, he says, Mary is going is, is to uh, have a child conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then uh, Jesus comes along in Luke 19.10 and says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. 
Luke 9, 56, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. He's saying, I am a rescuer. Jesus is a savior. He offers salvation. That's what it means to be saved. I had a guy tell me recently, he said, <laughs> a couple of years ago, he was on a search committee for his church. And he told me this kind of funny story. He said, uh, he said we found this great, great candidate. And I don't know if it's the, the guy that is currently they chose for their church or not. He said, we found a great candidate. He was just, he was articulate. He was godly. He knew the scriptures. He said, and we're in there talking about him, and I'm thinking he's, you know, we're, we're, we're all talking good about him, and somebody raised his hand, I got one problem with this guy. And they all were kind of stunned. He said, what's, what's, what's the problem? He talks too much about sin. <laughs> he talks too much about sin. Now think about it. The Bible is like a mirror that shows us our sin. And so that should be one of the natural outcomes of teaching from the Scriptures. The conviction of our sinfulness. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, in our spiritual life, most often, the thing we need most is often hidden in the words or ideas that are most uncomfortable to us. These troubling words often mark the reality to which we need to be awakened most seriously. It is here we should focus our time and attention. To turn away would be unwise. And yet turning away is often the approach we take. When we make this choice, we are not only failing to step forward in our knowledge of God, we are stepping backward. By failing to seek the truth with all of our hearts, we remain on the outside of the door. In essence, choosing to avoid discomfort we have chosen what we want God to be instead of finding out who He really is. Guys, the truth is often hard. And one way to deal with it is to try to soften it or not talk about it or avoid it. As Isaiah says, tell us what's pleasant, even if it's an illusion, even if it's not true. Now, a third way we respond to the truth, and this is really interesting, is also found in Romans 1. In fact, it's really tied to the first, but I, I, there's, there is, a, I think, a, 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 a separate and distinct, uh, there's a distinction between the two, I would say. Um, Paul says this, For the wrath of God, this is Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In this, the context of this, suppression here in Romans 1.18 is defined as an active holding down of the truth. It's what the Bible calls unbelief. And it's interesting, if you go back and read in the book of Mark in the sixth chapter, verses 1 through 6, Jesus comes in to you know, he's in the midst of his ministry, and word is spread, and he comes into his own hometown where he grew up, Nazareth. And the people, are, they marvel at his words. But it's, he says he, he didn't do any miracles. He healed a few people, 
because they took offense to him. They didn't believe in him. And in verse 6 it says, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. I want to share a good example of this. This is from uh, Dr. Thomas Nagel. He's a professor of philosophy at NYU. He says, in speaking of the fear of religion, I don't mean to refer to the entirely reasonable hostility towards certain established religions in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, social policies, and political influence, nor am I referring to the association of many religious beliefs with superstition and the acceptance of evident empirical falsehoods. I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I want atheism to be true. And it made very uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. He says, it isn't that I don't believe in God, listen to this, and naturally hope there is no God. He says, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. It's almost like he saying, it may be that way, but that's not the way I want it. Notice Paul says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. C.S. Lewis says, what first attracted him to atheism, he says, I could gratify my wishes. He says, I realized I didn't want a divine authority to interfere with my life. So I was attracted to atheism. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Lee Strobel. If you're not, he's written some wonderful books. And he, uh, in fact, today he's a minister. Um, But he's very well educated. He was a lawyer, graduated from Yale Law School. He was head of the legal affairs department at the Chicago Tribune. You know how he described himself? He said, I I would have described myself as a decadent atheist. Not just an atheist, a decadent atheist. He said, my wife was too. Until she came home one day and told me that she had become a Christian. He said, I almost fell on the floor. He said, but I didn't believe that it really had changed her. But as time went by, he said, he noticed that God was doing a work in her life. And so if you know anything about him, he began in a quest. Really, the intent was to prove to his wife what a fool she was. And so he flew all over the country interviewing all these scholars on all these issues. And he said one day after I think a year or two, he says, the unthinkable took place. He said, I I began to realize that all this stuff was true. And he became a Christian. And he says, looking back, he said, I latched on to a naturalistic worldview as an excuse to jettison the idea of God so I could unabashedly pursue my own agenda in life without moral constraints. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. One other quick story, and then I'll, I'll get to the fourth and final. This, this is a powerful story, guys. <clears throat> it's a true story. A number of years ago, the Templeton, John Templeton Foundation had a uh, contest and uh, wanting people to write essays on the power of purpose. And the, the essay that won was by a, a gentleman by the name of August Turak. I don't know anything about him. Um, but he wrote this really, really fine essay. 
And uh, in it, he talks about a retreat that he has where he goes to a monastery and spends time just kind of getting away from the frenetic life that he was living. And he said at this particular monastery, he had a mentor whose name was Father Christian. He said Father Christian was 88 years old. He was fluent in French and Latin. He spoke some Greek. He had three PhDs in philosophy and theology. And Turek talks about going to Father Christian with an issue to discuss a problem that he had, a predicament he's in. He said, I shared it with him and I sat back. He said, Father Christian seemed to ignore my predicament. And then he launched into a story about a minister having a crisis of faith and was leaving the ministry. The man was a friend of his and Christian took his crisis so seriously that he actually left the monastery and traveled to this man's house in order to do what he could. The two men spent countless hours in fruitless theological debate. Finally, dropping his voice, Father Christian looked the man steadily in the face and said, Bob, is everything all right in your life? The minister said everything was fine. But the minister's wife called Father Christian a few days later. She had overheard Christian's question and her husband's answer. And she told Father Christian that the minister was having an affair and was leaving her as well as his ministry. Father Christian fairly spat with disgust. I was wasting my time. Bob's problem was that he couldn't take the contradiction between his preaching and his living. So God gets the boot. He says, remember this. You remember what? Remember this. All philosophical problems are at heart moral problems. It all comes down to how you intend to live your life. I'm going to say that, read that again. All philosophical problems are at heart moral problems. It all comes down to how you intend to live your life. You know, there's a final way that we can respond to the truth. And it's found in Jesus' words to Pilate in John chapter 18. He and Pilate are, 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 are talking. Jesus isn't saying much, but when he finally speaks, he says, because he's at Pilate asking, are, are you a king? They're saying you are a king. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And then he says this, everyone who is of the truth Here's my voice. You're of the truth. What does that mean? The Amplified says, He who is a friend of the truth, who belongs to the truth, who loves the truth, will hear my voice. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul speaks of all these people. He says, unfortunately, they will spiritually perish. And he says, why? Because they did not have a love of the truth so that they could be saved. Do we love the truth? Do we embrace the truth? Do we follow the truth? 
You know, one of the reasons, if you read any of C.S. Lewis's biographers, one of the reasons they believe he was such an exceptional man and such an exceptional thinker was because his underlying philosophy of life was follow the truth wherever it leads you. And if any of you read about Anthony Flew, the most notorious and famous and most antagonistic atheist in the 20th century, stunned the world when he admitted he changed his mind. He, was now, he now believes in God. Even though he's not sure at this moment which one he believes, he says Christianity seems to be the most reasonable. I'm not sure where he is in the journey. But he was interviewed by ABC News. And they asked him, how did you change your mind? And Flew said, I followed the philosophy I've followed all of my life. And that is to follow the truth wherever it leads. And if you think about it, isn't this what Jack Welch said? Look reality, look the truth in the eye, and act upon it with as much speed as you can. He says this is the key if you want to be a healthy, vibrant, and dynamic person. I want to wrap this up with just a couple of concluding thoughts, and we'll be done. Uh, Lyle Dorsett, who many of you may be familiar with, he lives here in Birmingham, now wrote a book on the spiritual life of C.S. Lewis. And in the book he says, you know, Lewis had a foundational belief that, and I'm going to quote from the book, that Scripture is the place where we hear God's voice most clearly and definitively. It's where we receive divine guidance. It's how God speaks truth into our lives. And Lewis believed that God speaking to us through the Scripture is how we experience personal transformation. It's how we become healthy people. Because as Jesus says, your word, my word is truth. And I share this with you because back in the 1980s, I had a guy that, that mentored me spiritually. And he was trying to teach me how to listen to God through the Scriptures. And during this time, I came to realize something and I shared it with him. I admitted it. I said, you know, I'm not sure I really want to know what God has to truly say to me. Isn't that interesting? I was telling, I'm kind of afraid of the truth. I mean, I liked my life. I'm afraid he might tell me something that might, he might want to change. And looking back, I realized I didn't really trust God and His goodness. I didn't trust His will for my life. And you know what has really changed me and changed my viewpoint? To the point I truly yearn to hear from Him is when I realized that when I had surrendered my life to Christ back in 1974, that at that moment I had been adopted into His family, I became His child, and He was my Heavenly Father. He wasn't a drill sergeant. He wasn't like a cop. He was like a Heavenly Father that wanted to teach and speak into my life. And that's what all fathers desire to do with their children if they love them. And for that reason, I really do. I long to hear for what He has to say to me as my Heavenly Father, as I seek His leadership and guidance in my life. You know, in John chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He encounters a crippled man, and He asks him a very unusual question. He asks him, Do you want to get well? 
unusual, crippled man. Do you want to get well? Then as I look around this morning, I know that we don't, I don't know that we have, you know, what kind of physical disabilities we have. Probably not a whole lot. But we're all crippled. We are. And Jesus is asking each of us, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healthy? Well, guys, it starts, I really believe, by loving the truth and following it. It means you will confront and run towards your problems, not away from them, particularly your relational problems. You see, healthy people deal with the logs in their lives instead of always worrying and pointing out the specks in the eyes of others. And I would go back to what Lewis said, because I really believe this is true. Over the years, I have seen a number of men, whose li- as Christian men, whose lives have truly been transformed, where their lives really come together, and you see a real strength in their inner life. And guys, without exception, these men's lives were grounded in the Word of God. Without exception. And finally, and I don't know about you, I was really blessed last week by Drayton's words when he talked about obedience. Not being fo- obedience is not following a bunch of rules and laws. He says obedience is seeking to align our wills with God's will. And he contends, along with many others, that this is the hidden key to happiness. But I would like to add this. I believe this is also the key to being a healthy man. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you've given us. That we don't walk through this life not knowing what's going on in a fog, but that you give us truth. You give us solid rock to build our lives on. Lord, I pray that you would make us to be lovers of the truth and that we would follow it wherever it leads. And that whatever problems or issues we have in our lives, we wouldn't run from them, we'd run to them. We'd look reality in the eye and act with as much speed as we could. Help us to be men, Lord, who are healthy, who are strong. But we realize that we are weak, we're needy. And so we thank you that as your children, that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us and speaks into our lives. We do thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.